Well, it's good to see each one of you. Great to see the, the Czech team back as well. How exciting. How awesome is that, man, to just go over the, across the world and next door to, right, and share Christ. That's what it's about, isn't it? I mean, as we talk about uh, what, you know, you, if you think about it, Jesus Christ, when, when we were saved, God could have immediately just said, okay, they're saved, boop, out of there, right? Let's get them on to heaven. Let's glor- glorification then. Boom, we're out of here, right? But he didn't do that, right? He, he left us here for a purpose. You know what I'm talking about? Left us here so that we could be ambassadors for Christ, so that we could go around to a lost and dying world and share the story of Jesus Christ and how a sinful man can be redeemed by the blood of Christ. You see, the, the issue, and by definition, really, the person and work of Jesus Christ is what Christianity is all about, right? That's why they call it Christianity. You know what I'm talking about? Christians are believers in and followers of Jesus Christ. And the Bible from cover to cover is supremely a book about Jesus Christ, right? The Old Testament is looking forward to the Messiah. Point from Genesis, you know, where it talks about Genesis 3, the seed that's coming that will crush the the head of the serpent through the prophets. All this is pointing to Christ. And then by the time you get to the New Testament, we see Christ revealed and we see Uh, his story told in the Gospels. Then we see his message going out in Acts, and then we see Christianity lived out uh, through the epistles, and eventually we will see the redemption uh, of the church and mankind and the world uh, in the book of Revelation. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ's impact upon the world. And that's really, as we think about scriptures, it's pointing to Christ, and, and there's nowhere that does this more than the passage we're looking at now in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, if you want to turn there to verse 15, we're going to pick up with really, and I warn you a little bit, this is a lot of doctrine that we're getting into here, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, You just have to listen a little more carefully and think about deep truths that are bigger than our finite minds can sometimes handle, okay? And that's, that's a good thing. Christ being central, obviously, is important, and that's why Paul, right here in this this letter, turns to a a Christology, a doctrine of Christ, to combat the heresies that the Colossian church is facing. Because Christ is central, he is an object of attack by the enemy. It was so in the wilderness, if you remember when he went out and fasted for 40 days, you remember that he was attacked by who? Satan, right? The enemy. Let's see if we can pull this thing down in its roots. Uh, It's been so throughout church history as cults have sprung up uh, and tried to pervert who Christ is. And if you look at all cults, that's basically what they're doing. It's taking Christ and turning him into a great teacher or somebody who's a created being and we ought to listen to, but he's not God, things like that. It's even been so, sadly, in even so-called evangelical circles. It wasn't too many years ago there was a, a group got together called the Jesus Seminar, and they voted on the words of the Bible. Which ones did Christ really actually even say? Spoiler alert, he said all of them that are in there, okay? You don't really have to go read about the Jesus Seminar at this point. They had little marbles. Some of them were red, and some of them were pink, and some of them were gray, and some of them were black. And they voted, well, I think he may have said that. I'm sure he didn't say that. Well, he may have said that. And you had mankind standing in judgment over the Word of God. How, How absolutely absurd is that? Jesus has been attacked, and he is being attacked, and it wasn't any different in Colossae. Much of the Colossian heresy centered 
around a, a perverted view of Christ. They denied his humanity. They said that Jesus was basically just one of uh, the spirit beings who was less than God and who emanated from God. And he was good and all that kind of stuff. And God used him to communicate to us, but he really wasn't God. Okay, that's part of what they were teaching. Uh, they denied his deity as well. They had this dualism that said flesh is, is evil and spirit is good. And since Jesus Christ was flesh, he couldn't be good, right? You tracking with me? Did I lose you on this so far? All right, I know it's a little theology, but just hang with me. This is what's going on. And it isn't any different today. They denied that Jesus Christ's work alone is adequate or sufficient for salvation. In other words, they said, hey, you know what? You need something that's bigger than that and more than that. You need a superior, superior, mystical, a superior mystical knowledge. We see that today, don't we? Hey, I've got a word from the Lord for you kind of stuff, right? We, we, people are really want to, I, I want to be on the next level. How do I get to the highest points? Everybody thinks I'm super spiritual. They, we, they, they thought that you needed good emanations, which could also be worshiped. And that's really what the, what the heresy was all about. If you can picture this for a little bit, here's God, okay, over here. Come on, we're almost out of time. <laughs> Tallest guy gets to be God, right? Wait a minute, there's one more taller. All right, you're, God, you're playing God. I know. It's a stretch, right? All right. Uh, come on up. Is this your wife? Yes. What's her name? Bryn. Bryn? Bryn. Come on up, Bryn. All right. Bryn is not quite God. Would you agree with that? Don't answer that. You're gonna... <laughs> we'll have marriage counseling later. Stand over here. Right over here. All right. Come on. Next. You can tell this one's not spiritual. He doesn't move as fast. So we're getting less and less spiritual as we move down here, Okay. <laughs> Wow, I think we might have arrived. Come on, here we go. And we could do this with everybody in the church, but we won't. So here we are. I'm fallen man, there's God down there. The way the Colossian heresy went was this. I have to be able to communicate with somebody who's more like me, okay, who's more fallen, and you obviously, wait a minute, move over here. All right. <laughs> right? So here, here we got the, the one who, he's, he's spiritual, but he's, he's higher up than me, but he's not quite, anywhere close to God, so we've got him, and then he can communicate to her, and she can communicate to her, and eventually there's somebody who's close enough who can communicate to God. That's the Colossian heresy. All these spirit, these are emanations from God to help communicate uh, with God. There you go, you can sit down. Go back to sleep. All right, so, so they have this thing where, you know, we need all these different go-betweens that go between, and each one of those they would worship. Paul's addressing that as well. They were also coming in saying that we need to keep ceremonial laws, the Jewish ceremonial laws, in order to add those good works to salvation in order to be accepted by God. Okay, so all these things are going on. So what Paul does here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, before dealing with those heretics, what he does is he lifts up Christ, all right? And he shows the preeminence of Christ, the superiority of Christ, that he is absolutely supreme. And, and what he does in verses 15 through 17, which we're going to talk about today, is they show that he is supreme in creation as God. And then in verses 18 through 23, he is supreme in regard to reconciliation, reconciling humanity to himself. So we're going to focus in on Colossians 1, 15 through 17. I want to direct your attention in this passage to the Christ of the Bible, and he is our worthy Lord, okay? And I want us to look at, and you see these on your outline, six reasons 
for worshiping Jesus Christ as God. And, and we wanna look at these reasons for the same purpose that Paul wrote them down to start with, and that is so that we have an accurate biblical view of Jesus Christ so that we will see who he really is and that will have the effect of guarding us from error in doctrine and it will provoke us to walk in a manner, manner that is worthy of our Lord, which is what we talked about last time we were all together. And as I said, this is doctrine and, and it's meant to, to stretch our, our puny minds and to dominate our thinking and fire us up, all right? Let's read the passage together. Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 17. Hold on a second. Whoa, it's There we go. I appreciate that, by the way. That's kind to put that there because I do sweat like a uh, dog in a Tex-Mex taqueria, but um, <laughs> let's go to the book of the, Colossians 1:15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him... All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, the first reason why we should worship Jesus Christ as Lord, and this is point number one on your outline, he is the exact visible representation of God. He is the exact biblical visible representation of God. That's what verse 15, the beginning of the verse says, he is the image of the invisible God. The word image there is icon, the Greek word, it, it, like we get our English word icon, like on your computer screen, there's a little icon that is the program that you double click on or whatever to, to get the program. It, it represents, he is a likeness, a visible representation. That's what the word icon means here. And if you put this in the context here in Colossians of the surrounding verses, such as chapter one, verse 19, chapter two, verse nine, which talk about him having all the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form, we understand that what this is talking about is there is the complete essential likeness of God in Jesus Christ. Okay, track with me on this. He is the exact visible representation of God. Now, this entails two things. Number one, there is the idea in this of, 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 of this image of representation, okay? Not an accidental similarity, but an intentional representation of something else or someone else in this case. And that happens with this word either naturally, like a father uh, looks like, or a son looks like a father, you know? A lot of times you'll see that uh, natural uh, representation of the father as a son even looks physically often like a father or a mother or, or one who went before him. And sometimes it's by design. That's the idea of a, a sculpture who takes a block of marble and starts to chisel out something that looks like something else. So there's this idea of a representation. Now the idea here is not physical, which are those two things I've just described are uh, God the Father, we know from the word of God, John 4, 24, is spirit, Right? Okay, and we know from John 1.18 that no one has seen him at any time. Okay, we're not talking about when you saw Jesus Christ, you saw what, what uh, God physically looked like, God the Father physically looked like. That's not the idea here. The idea and what Paul's trying to communicate is that Jesus Christ represents the very nature, the very essence of God. Now, now think about this for just a second, okay? Man, look around you in this room. Mankind bears the image of God, right? 
Isn't that what Genesis teaches? That we were made, how? In the image of God, all right? So if you think about that for a little bit, you might just be tempted to say, well, what's the difference between me being in the image of God and Jesus Christ being in the image of God? The image of God, all right? I mean, just if you're trying to logically use your mind, try to figure this stuff out, that might come to your head. What's the difference between us and, and Jesus Christ? And this is significant and it's worth thinking about because what the Bible says about us is it says we were made in the image of God. And what it says about Jesus Christ right here is that he is the image of God. You know the difference, right? One was fashioned in the image of God and one is the image of God. Uh, if, you, if you think about theology, you'll know that God has attributes, right? Characteristics. They're, they fall into two categories. The first category is communicable attributes. What that means is these are attributes that can be passed on to say us, right? So you and I, in a, even in a fallen sense, we have an ability, although it's certainly not to the level of, of God's, to show mercy. And God's, one of God's attributes is mercy, right? That we have uh, the ability to forgive or we have the ability to show love. We have the ability to, to exercise dominion, right? He even gave that to us in Genesis to have dominion over creation. So there are communicable attributes. There are, part of those attributes can be reflected in us. Well, man being made in the image of God, part of that making is that we have those communicable attributes that we exercise imperfectly. Now, the second category of God's attributes, are you awake on me? Is this okay? Am I getting too theological here? I didn't think so. And the second category is incommunicable attributes. You see that? Those are the ones that we never will have, right? We are not, contrary to the way people throw the word around, we are not eternal beings, okay? We will live into eternity forever, right? But we're not eternal because we had a, what's the word I'm looking for? Somebody help me. Come on, the human thesauruses. A beginning, exactly. We didn't, God didn't have a beginning, we have a beginning. He's eternal, we're not eternal. All the omnis, omnipresent, we're not that, right? Although sometimes you wonder about some people. Uh, omnipotent, all-powerful, uh, omniscient, you know everything. Some people think they know everything, they don't know everything. They think they've got that incommunicable attribute, it's not true, they just don't know it, which proves that they don't have it. All those kind of things. Jesus Christ has those, right? He has the communicable and the incommunicable because he is the representation, the essence, he is God. That's the representation idea. There's a second part of the idea here and that is manifestation. While, there, while we're in the image of God in representation in a finite limited sense, Jesus Christ is the manifestation. Christ was manifest so that we could better comprehend God, okay? Go back to that icon, you know, that computer program that's on your, your, your desktop at home and you double click on it and Microsoft Word opens up, okay? That icon, you look at it and you say, it says Word, MS Word underneath it, right? It has a little picture of a, a document. I know what that is, even the little edge of the paper's turned down. I can figure that out, right? If on my screen, all I had on my screen when I booted up the computer was 110, 1111111110, 1111110, 1111110, binary, right? Because that's what is the basis of the, what a computer program is. It's just a bunch of on and off switches, right? That are doing certain things that I don't understand in order to help us write a letter to somebody that they're gonna throw away. 
You see what I'm saying here? So it's a way of communicating. That icon is a way of communicating the program instead of putting 110, you know, all that kind of stuff down so that we go, hey, I want to write a letter. There's Microsoft Word. I need to understand that. That's the idea of manifestation here. Uh, we're, we're finite. We cannot comprehend infinite. And so we're dependent on something else to communicate to our puny, pusillanimous minds what exactly God is about. And so what we have here is we have Jesus Christ sent so that we can understand better God and who he is. That's what 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, how? In the face of Christ. You wanna see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? It's where? In the face of Christ. John 1, 18 says this, no man has seen God at any time, but... The, nobody's seen the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, but he, speaking of Christ, explains him, helps us to understand him. As Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus Christ is the exact representation, manifestation of God's nature. He is God in human flesh. By the way, that's exactly what Jesus Christ claimed. It's, it's hip today to say, you know what? I don't think Jesus ever said in the Bible that he was God. Can I just say to that person, you know, read the Bible. <laughs> we'll start there and then you'll find it pretty easily. I mean, you come in through there, John, for example, John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Do we need to go further? Can I just stop and move along now? I and the Father are one. And the, the, the audience who was saying that to at the time, the Jews, they heard that. And what was their response? Well, they, he means they're unified. They're on the same page. They have the same mission. They're not the same. No, no. Their response was, let's get some rocks. Let's throw them at this man because he has just, as it says this at the end of the passage, he is making himself out to be God. See, they got it. We, we re reinterpret things in our society, but it is the unanimous testimony of Scripture that Jesus Christ is God. And to think anything less of Jesus Christ, my friends, is blasphemy and gives evidence of a mind that is blinded by Satan. That's what 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, talking about unbelievers. It says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, and how does he describe Christ? Who is the image of God. So Jesus Christ is God. He's deity. He's God in human flesh. If you've seen him, you've seen God. And as such, he is preeminent, folks, and he is worthy of our worship. That's just one point out of six. Are we going to make it, you think? All right. Yeah, I don't, I don't hear confidence in you guys. Second reason why we should worship Jesus Christ as God is that, this is number two on your outline, he is preeminent over all creation preeminent over all creation. Okay, this is verse 15 again, latter part of the verse, where it says he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, people stumble and have stumbled over this for years, right? They misunderstand firstborn of all creation to mean that he was the first created thing. Okay? He's the firstborn. See, I told you he's not God because he was created, right? He's the firstborn of the creation. Now, when you understand any kind of semantics, you want to look at what, how the language is used. And the Bible is very clear. And it uses this term, this concept of firstborn repeatedly throughout. And, and it has two ways that this firstborn is used, okay? Number one, it is used in the way of talking about time. That would be a firstborn like those folks are hearing it, all right? Like, uh, I am the thirdborn of my mother's sons, okay? So 
my brother Matt the first, is the firstborn. He's the first one to come around. You see what I'm saying? There's that idea, the eldest child in the family. The second one is, is the way it's used in the Bible is the idea of rank, okay? Meaning one of the highest rank, first place would be one way of thinking about it, all right? It's not time here with Jesus Christ because everybody knows John 3.16, right? John 3.16 says he is the only begotten, right? Son, monogenes, he's the only begotten. So talking about his uniqueness and all that kind of stuff, he's not the eldest if he's the only. I remember a guy I used to know, he used to always introduce his wife. He thought it was so funny, man. He thought this was so funny. He would introduce his wife to people and he'd say, this is my first wife. Now it was his only wife, all right, you get it? But why was it funny or why did he think it was funny? Because it made no sense in a way. It's true, he is the first, but nobody says that because that's not the way you talk about an only. And so that's the same concept here. When it talks about the firstborn of all creation, you're not talking about an only that way. You see what I'm saying? All right. Psalm 89 verse 27 sheds a little further light on this. This is a messianic psalm. And, and listen, to, listen to this verse. I also shall make him, talking about Christ, the Messiah, my firstborn, this is God talking, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now what happens here is a little grammatical thing called apposition. Okay, apposition is, uh, goes like this. This is my wife, Kim. Okay, the, word, the words my wife and Kim are in apposition. It's like, instead of a comma there, you can just put an equal sign. My wife equals Kim. All right, you tracking with me here? All right, that's apposition. And here's what he does here. He says, this is my, this is my firstborn apposition, the highest kings, the highest of the kings of the earth. So it's defining that my firstborn as a rank position. Psalm 89, what God's saying is my firstborn is the highest ranking. Let me illustrate that in a couple other places. Jacob and Esau, remember those guys? All right, now they, they were twins, correct? But one of them was born first. Which one was born first? Esau was born first, right? Okay, but God later refers to Jacob as the firstborn. You see, why? Because he has the birthright. He's the one with the rank. Okay, you tracking with me so far? Uh, several places in scripture, Exodus 4, 22, Jeremiah 31, uh, 3, Israel is called the firstborn. Let me ask you this. Does anybody in this room think Israel was the first nation or race or group of people that ever existed? No, no, they come way down in the Bible. The, the creation's been going on for thousands of years before you even get to Abraham, right? No, no. There's something different going on here. What God, and they understood this, the audience that read it, it was not the first people born, that's not what he's describing, but that Israel is God's uh, highest ranking and God's sight the first in all of the nations. By the way, the context here, if you look down at verse 16 of our chapter in Colossians 1, uh, the context distinguishes Christ from creation, not saying he's the first of creation, but it says by him, all things were created. It doesn't say all the other things. It says all things were created. Now, since he is supreme over creation and we are his creation, the thing that ought to be going through your head right now is I have a responsibility, don't I? I mean, I've been created by him for a purpose. And Christ is the creator. Is He is supreme over his creation. And we need to, if we really want to live our lives well, according to the design we need to submit ourselves to his design for our lives. 
That means instead of holding grudges and things like that and being prideful, that we ought to be unified. Instead of just looking out for our own selfish desires, we, we should uh, serve one another in love. He wants us to be obedient stewards instead of uh, just using everything of our own for our own purposes. And so the call here is to, to realize a supreme creator and submit yourself under the supreme creator's command. That we must bow our knee to our Lord and stop putting ourselves before the king because get this, and this is Paul, what Paul's saying, he is first. First. He's first place. So he's worthy of our worship because he's perfect, exact, visible representation of God. He is supreme over creation. Here's the third one. This third reason why we should worship Jesus Christ as God, he is the creator of all things. Now, we've already hit on this a little bit, right? But let's look at verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And by the way, when you're reading through this passage, just check out all the prepositions that are used around Christ before him, by him, for him, all him, you know, in him. I mean, it's all over the place. Just... Christ is the whole, whole enchilada here, what, what, uh, what Paul's trying to describe. Jesus Christ is the architect. We're in him and, and the builder by him, right? And the goal for him. All the creative plans and forces and purposes reside in Christ. And our passage shows us that. And verse 16 shows us that he created all of creation, right? In every location, in heavens or on earth. Any other place you can think about? Now that pretty much covers it, Right? How about every kind, visible and invisible? Anything outside those two categories? He created everything, right? How about this one? Of every rank, thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, he's created the whole thing. And by the way, when he goes to that idea of invisible, he, he moves the discussion to the spiritual realm and these terms for, refer to the various uh, levels and ranks of, of angelic beings, this, this idea of thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. And so he's starting to begin to lay the groundwork for dealing with this heresy. Because in Colossae, again, the, the spirits were receiving worship that was due to Jesus Christ, the creator. And Paul's just starting to lay the foundation and say, does this make sense? And the obvious answer is, of course not. Of course not. The creator should receive the worship. Why do you think there is so much attack on the idea of a creator God? Is it really somebody really cares about how this all started that much? I mean, that's really not the bottom line, is it? The, the, the deal is they want to take him out of the position of authority. They want to attempt to pull that out of the equation. And nowadays, because we're so very intellectual, we can't understand or even comprehend or even desire to know this whole hocus pocus kind of idea of a creator, right? We'd much rather believe in something very, very realistic like uh, out of nothing plus nothing equals everything kind of idea, right? We'd much rather really just think, you know, look at this beautiful pulpit here. It just came to be like this. If I came up to you and said, did you know this? This thing just, it grew out of the ground right there, just like that, it has a speaker in it, has carpet on it, everything. You guys would think I was a nut, right? You may think that anyway. But you would go, that's ridiculous. Look at the technology, look at the design. There's a place for a microphone to come out here. There's cords dangling down here. It's, you know, beautiful woodwork and stain and all this kind of stuff. Obviously, there was a plan, a purpose for this. It holds a, a book at a right height for somebody to speak to you and put some notes down. How neat that that grew out of nothing. No, 
No, no, we, we wouldn't take that in any area of life, but when it comes to creation, people accept that kind of answer every day. And all you have to do is really con just contemplate the creation, just like we contemplated this pulpit, and you'll go, there's no way this happened out of chance. I mean, the creation is an amazing thing, right? Just the size of it is staggering. I mean, our earth, is, our, our sun is uh, 864,000 miles in diameter. All right, that's pretty big, right? I don't have anything compared to, but it's big. Just take my word for that. Here, here's, here's something that might help you. Our earth, 1.3 million of them could be fit inside a sphere the size of the sun. That's how big the sun is. That's pretty big, right? Uh, the star Betelgeuse is 10 million miles in diameter as opposed to our sun, which is less than a million miles in diameter. So you can kind of see that's not even the biggest one, by the way, but that's bigger than the Earth's orbit around the sun. The distance between us is the radius, right? The whole Betelgeuse would basically just cook us right in the middle of all that. Sunlight traveling to our Earth at 186,000 miles per second takes eight and a half minutes to get here, okay? It's like one of my points. That, that light that just got here eight and a half minutes ago left the sun. That's how far away it is. When was the last time you saw light traveling? You know, it's moving at 186,000 miles a second, right? It's a lot. It would take the same light four years to reach, the, four years, not eight and a half minutes, four years to reach the next nearest star, which is a, a star called Alpha Centauri. By the way, I was figuring on this on the drive-in this morning. My, I wasn't driving, so it's not a... My wife was driving, and, and, and we're driving along, and I got to thinking about it because we were up at Griffith Park this, this, uh, yesterday. And, you know, how many of you have been up to the observatory up there? Okay. Yeah, have you ever noticed on the, the sidewalks out front of it, they have the, the solar system? They have the, where, here's the sun, here's the earth, you know, to scale how far apart the planets are. They even have Pluto. <laughs> well, they didn't get the memo. Um, they, you know, they have this all kind of scaled out. So if you're, the sun's back in the back there, the, you know, Pluto, if you're standing at the orbit of Pluto, you're about 40 yards away. Well, I got to thinking about this, thinking about this Alpha Centauri as I was looking over my notes coming in. I'm like, how far would that be if you took it to the scale of Griffith Park Observatory? Because the earth to the sun's maybe about like this there. Okay, how far would it be if you were doing it at that same scale before we could draw the orbit, it's not the orbit, but you know what I'm talking about, of Alpha Centauri. You'd have to put that little plaque in New Zealand. That's a long ways away. New Zealand's a long way away, much less taking it times all the different, you know, this is as far as the Earth to the sun. That was for me, that wasn't for y'all, I hope you enjoyed it, okay? This is an amazing, huge creation. In our galaxy alone, Milky Way, there are 100 billion stars, and that was the closest one just in our galaxy. Scientists estimate there are probably a billion more galaxies out there. In fact, scientists estimate the number of stars at 10 to the 25th power, that's uh, 10, you know, it has 25 zeros following it. And oddly enough, that's roughly equal to the number of grains of sand that they estimate on the world's beaches. That's a huge creation, and it was. He said it, and it was. By the way, it's also staggering when you get to the minuteness of it, isn't it? 800,000 species of cataloged insects, different ones. I mean, think about trying to de design 800,000 different anythings. Absolutely staggering. Our creator, creator deals with this immensity 
and he deals with the details as well. I mean, he knows the number of hairs on your head, the Bible tells us. With you, that's easy. With me, that's not so hard. But some of you, it's a little different. See, by the way, the organization, it's not just randomly out there. The organization of the creation bears witness to its creator as well. Scientists call this the anthropic uh, principle, which states that the universe appears to be carefully designed for the well-being of mankind. In other words, you take the earth, and this is why they can't find a planet that, that could sustain life. If you move it a little bit farther, a little bit closer, you tilt it a little bit, guess what happens to me, you? You know, we fry, we freeze or something, but we're not around for long. It's designed carefully for the well-being of man. I mean, if the moon were even closer, there would be huge tides that would inundate uh, our shorelines and the continents. Obviously, there is a creator, and that's why David uh, just cries out in Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hand. The creation's testimony is so clear that only willful unbelief can reject it. And that's what uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 talks about, where it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The natural revelation can't save you, but it sure can let you know there's a God and you need to be reconciled to him. Like those who deny Christ's deity, those who reject him as creator, give evidence of a mind that is darkened by sin and blinded by Satan because the creation screams out witness of its creator who is Jesus Christ according to our passage today. Now, let me ask you a question. If he's that creator, is he limited in any way? I mean, in the bottom line, if he is the creator, which he is, he can do anything, right? He is all-powerful, uh, he can, I mean, let me ask you something. Can he help you break a habit? I, th I think the, the really easy answer to that is yes. Don't be nervous. You can nod your head. Uh, can he uh, change a life? Absolutely he can change a life. Can he save a marriage? You bet he can save it. He's done that and he's done much more already. He is interested in the details of our life. He cares for us. And there's this whole enormous universe out there that I described to you, but yet he cares for the desperate lost people on an insignificant planet called Earth. You know what? He's supreme in creation. And because of that, he deserves our worship. And he is a God who is powerful and able to act in true life situations. Number four. The fourth reason why we should worship Jesus Christ as God is that he is the goal of all things, G-O-A-L, goal of all things. Verse 16, it says that all things have been created by him. We hit that, right? And what does it say? For him, for him. You see, one day, all of this creation will be unified in giving him glory. How cool is that gonna be, right? All of this creation, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess him as Lord, right? Philippians 2.10. Some, by the way, will confess with fear and trembling, calling for rocks, right? And some with excitement. I love the picture of the scene in heaven in Revelation 5, where John, he writes about this, this vision, what, he's, what God has showed him. And, and he says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and I heard the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads. 
I mean, that's like the biggest Greek number times the biggest Greek number. That's how he's just saying it's a bunch. It's all I can think of. It's the biggest number I can come up with. And thousands among thousands, a lot, right? And they were crying out and saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The whole uh, myriads and myriads are crying out and bringing worship to the lamb who was slain saying, he's worthy, he deserves honor, he deserves our worship. That's the goal for every mankind. The chief end of man, as the old catechism says, right, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Number five, Jesus Christ is supreme and worthy of our worship because he's perfect, exact representation of God. He's preeminent over all creation. He is the creator. He's the goal of all things. Number five, he was before all things. That's another reason why we should worship him as God. Verse 17, the beginning of the verse says, he is before all things. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If you're the creator, you're before all things. That's him. Jesus is eternal, as I talked about earlier. That's eternal in the past, too. Something that only God can be. He, He is prior to all creation, which clearly places him outside the realm of created beings. And that's what he was getting at in John 8, 58. Do you remember that? When the, they were talking to Jesus and they were, they were coming after him and kind of attacking him. You remember this? And, and he, he says, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Remember that? Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Now that is either bad grammar or he's saying something very profound. Hint, it's the second one. He's saying something very profound. He's using the verb I am, which is the, where the name of God, Yahweh, comes from, right? I am. Talking about the existence. I was, will be, am, same yesterday, day, day, all these kind of concepts. I mean, and if you think, well, maybe that's just, you know, a bad translation, let me just tell you what. Again, look at the context and see what the Jews, how they react. They knew exactly what he was doing, right? Before Abraham was, I am, really? Is that what you want to say? You want to say you're God? Can I have some more stones, please? The stone market must have been great there, right? Let's kill him. Let's kill him. He cannot say that. He cannot just show himself to be God like that. That's wrong. But that's what Jesus did. Jesus is God. He said it. Our passage says it. And as such, he is worthy of worship. Is this piling up yet? Number six. He is worthy of our worship, number six, because he is the sustainer of all things. He is not an impersonal being who created, spoke it into existence of the universe, and then stepped back with his buddies and said, let's see how this plays out. He's involved in it, right? He is the sustainer of all things. Look at verse 17. He's before all things, and get this. This is amazing. In him, in Christ, all things, what does it say? Verse 17, the end of the verse, all things hold together. I mean, he's... If he's not holding us together right here, I submit to you that our molecules just separate. (laughs) You know what I mean? That we just all just kind of go into a little fog. I mean, he is the sustainer of us. We talked about the tides, you know, and what the effect was of the earth was on the temperatures and all that kind of stuff. He's the one who who created it, but he's the one who keeps it in balance. And that which was created continues to exist because of his mercy and grace. There's a famous medieval painting that has a picture of Christ and, and Christ is in the center of it and it has all these little gold lines or strings look, they look like going from him to all the little other parts of the, the painting showing that he is the sustainer of all things. That's a representation of what they're trying to show in that, that artwork. You know, even today, 
People are trying to figure it out. How in the world do atoms stay together? I can tell you why. Because our God holds them together. Oh, that's superstitious. No, no, that's truth. It's truth. That's the way it works. He's the one who does it. It's held together by his word. And since Jesus Christ is the sustainer, folks, I think you know where I'm going with this. He is able and he deserves our worship, right? In other words, since he's a sustainer, you and I who are in Christ, who love him and are called according to his purposes, we can rejoice, right, and have peace because we know that he works all things together for good, right, for us for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purposes. Isn't that a cool thing or what? That the one who created, the one who sustains, the one with the ability, the one with the knowledge, the one with the power, the one that is good, the one with the grace, the one who's the judge, he is the one who comes and he says, you know what? I have promised this promise to you. I work all things together good for you as you submit to the design of the creator, as you follow me and love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is an awesome truth. That should... You should have goosebumps on your goosebumps when you think about that. I'm telling you. I mean, this is an amazing thing to comprehend that there is a God who is so big and so wonderful, but yet desires to be so personal in his relationship with you that he would send his son to die on a cross to save you and I when we were enemies of him, fighting against him while we were fighting against him. And if I understand that that's who God is, that's how God cares, that's what God does, it keeps me from making a lot of costly mistakes with my life as I live it out. If we understand who he is, we don't scale him down. If we know that Jesus Christ is the exact visible representation of God, that he is preeminent over all things, the creator of all things, the goal of all things, before all things, the sustainer of all things, then the only proper response, folks, is this. Are you ready? We should live our lives absolutely, completely for him by his grace. We should walk worthily, as we talked about in previous sections. Anything other than that is preeminently irrational. That's the theology, the theology that plays off in the practice. I love the book of Romans, and at the end of chapter 11 of the book of Romans, Paul gets excited as he's pondered who God is. And as he's closing out that chapter, of course the chapter division's worth there, but as he's writing that section, he just breaks out in a, in a benediction in a, in, a, in a chorus of praise. And he just says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. Didn't we just see something like that on the screen? Who gives him counsel, that kind of thing? Who has known the mind of the Lord who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be given back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. Paul just breaks it down and just goes, I just can't take it. My mind is little and it just... Just full of who God is, and I just want to give him, just give him worship because I just am just overcome by the depth and the breadth of who my God is. And is it any coincidence that right after that amen that I just read to you, this verse comes? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me ask you this morning as we close up here. Are you living today? Is your life lined out where you're living totally for God? Are you in realization of this great creator and that he's the one who designed you and made you and knows the best way for you to operate and living in accordance with his operation manual that he's given you here, right, the word of God? You say, well, I can't do that. I know you can't. You can't do that unless you've encountered him. You can't do that unless he saved you, transformed you, empowered you. But once he has saved you, transformed you, empowered you, right? With the spirit that indwells you. As he gives you the word of God, do you think he is so unjust that he would ask you to do something that is impossible for you to do? Not in perfection, but in direction, right? We'll never be perfectly lining up with the word of God. Our flesh rears its ugly head way too often, doesn't it? But the... the, the the bent of our life should be towards Christ-likeness. The progression of our sanctification should be towards Christ-likeness. And to live any other way is absolutely outside rationality. Now, living rationally for God may be irrational to man. I understand that. That means when you face a, a, a tough situation, you trust him. Instead of taking matters in your own hands or going the world's way to fix things, putting your trust elsewhere. That means that when you have a situation, of, an ethical situation, where if you did not obey him, it would be profitable to you, you choose to obey him, even though the rest of the world around you is cheating and stealing as best they can to make their way. It means having integrity when a fleeting moment of pleasure calls you. It means... Commitment to others, to family, to the church, instead of a me first mentality. It means giving to others in need when the spirit provokes you to, to missions, to the church, instead of stockpiling or buying the latest thing. This kind of activity, folks, to the world looks crazy. Absolutely out. They're just, they're wacky. But, listen carefully. In light of who Jesus Christ is, that is the only way that we should respond. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time together. Lord, we thank you for this short glimpse into your word to see who Christ is, to see the, 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 the magnitude of our Savior, his preeminence and his power and his ability and, and how he is a full visible representation, how involved he was in creation and sustaining, how he is our goal, Father. And Lord, we're easily distracted. Lord, it's so easy for us to think that what is outside our car window or, or the, outside the doors of our home are the only things that matter. When, Father, we have been created for a purpose to serve and to worship you, Lord. May we give our worship not to ourselves and not to others, but to you and you alone. May we exalt Christ before a watching world to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.